Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. Believe it or not, I am not always inclined to try to find and fix the problem when I'm doing psychological counseling. That too is, in my opinion, ethically so, a matter of choice. And whose choice therein would it be? It's not mine. It would be the patient's. It would be the person coming in to seek help and assistance. And who am I to tell them what to work on? They need to tell me. Now, for sure, there's much to be said about why people come see me and how they get to the place where they need such assistance as I might offer. And uh, <laughs> any of you who listen to the podcast on a regular basis, uh, that's really what the podcast is about. The diversity, the multitude of potential cause, effect, <laughs> reasons why people come and seek assistance. Uh, I am inclined to want to identify the cause, and if it's a primary one where it really affects one's life, not just a situation, a circumstance, a moment in one's life, but over the course of the entirety of a person's life, sure, <laughs> I want to do what I can so that if that's primary, it's going to continue to happen, at least theoretically it would, and if it's a kind of an operational thing, uh, a way of approaching demands, <laughs> requests that are implicit or inherent to living life, uh, you have to respond. Then let's fix it. If <laughs> we you know it's broken or let's modify it if we can make it better and in that way reduce future difficulties. <laughs> keep going back to, I'll give you an example, keep going back to one of the most basic of all coping skills is hypothetical deductive reasoning, science. You say, well, that's really not a cope. Yes, it is. <laughs> if you run anything and everything through the hypothetical deductive model of reasoning and you're doing everything you can to take all the data in emotionally, sensorium, sensory, and uh, you're allowing your brain to uh, consider it within all cognitive capability or facility or faculty, you're going to do pretty well in life. That's a skill set. We used to go to school to learn that. <laughs> That's what education was about. Yeah, it was about a bunch of facts, but more than anything, it was about how to learn. And you can say, well, we're natural Learners, yes, but that's where psychology comes in. The great distortions in life, the things that create problems for us in terms of coping are subjective things. It's our perspective that's a bit distorted, but more than that, and that could be corrupted from the very earliest of moments in our life. You're taught the wrong things. You've, as a child, you're pretty much programmable. And so it's as stimulus response as it could be based on contingencies of reinforcement, sometimes punishment, 
when you're a child, but until your brain gets fully developed, you're more reactive as your brain gets to that stage of development where you begin to think about things and you have the mental capability to think about things in this sort of problem-oriented sort of way or solving-oriented sort of way then you need to figure out that for yourself up to the moment, though, that that comes online fully or you have the liberty to do that, then somebody else thinks for you. Now, is that bad? No. It's just nature. It's the way it is because you can't take it all in and you certainly can't conceptualize it all. And that's just the way it's, so to speak, the, the, the programming. It's hardwired, if I could call it that. So, as much that would be factual or true, to teach someone how to think in such scientific terms is really the great liberty. It's the great freedom. It goes along with, as well correlates to, autonomy, independence, mastery. Mastery being agency, and then mastery being the ability to use the skill set to the maximum. Capability. <laughs> Yours, not mine. It's wrong for anybody to tell you how to live your life when you get to the point of decision making, <laughs> liberty, choice. You have to then make that decision and you have to own the consequences. You have to own the results, the outcomes of your decisions. Now, if you again apply the, the model of science, the scientific model, good sound research model, of taking all that data in, feedback included, as you go, out through, go throughout your life, you'll continue to grow, mature, develop, refine, get better, not only at problem solving, but hopefully in the end, the consequences will start to stack up in a positive sort of way. And things will be much better. But when it goes the opposite direction, generally speaking, <laughs> we had to consider it not to be a problem apparatus or apparati, operational systems inherent in humans. It's probably some distortion from outside. <laughs> <laughs> the genetic composition. Now, yes, I do think that evolution dictates there can be some changes in genetic composition and structure. I don't know that it's any different than maybe this thought. There's a couple ways even you can look at that. The possibility might always be there, but whether or not you choose to push that button... <laughs> or whether or not you would choose to flip that switch, as they used to say, or actualize that particular genetic predisposition, you still have a great deal of liberty. And who's the one pushing your button and flipping your switches? Once again, it's whomever you've had the fortune or misfortune of being brought up by, maybe born to. You don't get to choose that. But when you get a bit older and you get a chance to kind of take a look at all of the data and you begin to take in survey and take in other lifestyles, other ways of living, which you should, right? Then you have an opportunity to kind of step back and say, well, everything that I thought I was, was or everything that I thought that I was, or was taught that I was or am, maybe it's not the best. And with that then, and all that processing emotionally and 
mentally you start to apply a hypothetical deductive model of reasoning. You start to take a look at that. Uh, develop sound philosophy or paradigm when it comes to research and how to make decisions about such things. And you don't want to throw it all out. Maybe some of it is good and hopefully for the most part socialization or just all that you've been taught has had at least core basics. And then if you include school as an element of that or your academics or your educational pursuits, then you're going to get at least a chance to see the world outside of what you maybe within your nuclear family or within uh, the real closest of relatives, <laughs> you may not really get that chance. And even with that chance, there's sometimes people just don't change. <laughs> They've just kind of gotten into or brought up in and they've gotten into and remained in a way of thinking. Uh, it's not all bad. That's what makes diversity continue in cultural terms, social terms. There's groups of people who, for various reasons, some of them environmental, some of them, again, psychological, they do things differently. But that's the beauty in life, is it not? We can do things differently. However, when it is so obviously so, something where a button's been pushed or something about that flip of a switch turns out to have bad consequences or you feel it's bad at some level, that's when you should test it. That's when you should examine it, explore it. And examining and exploring it is what we do in psychological counseling. Now, that what it can presume in a universal sort of way where most of us are kind of comparably genetically equipped. And that if there is much diversity or if there's much uh, difference, some of which may be measured in terms of better, more adaptive behaviors, thoughts, ways of living life, some of which may be determined in <laughs> maybe lesser adaptive, uh, some as with lesser adaptive, not beneficial, uh, creating additional conflicts, difficulties, problems, and sometimes just feelings alone. <laughs> if it hurts a lot, you may not want to do it, but then even that's a bit of a rabbit hole in this way. Things that hurt aren't always bad for you. Growth itself is a bit painful. Changing a paradigm is a bit painful. <laughs> Getting people around you to buy into that can be a bit painful. And few would argue that adolescence, even childhood, even infancy is all painful. And then, you know, how could we then say that adulthood is? It's just, this is the way life is. There's a lot of requests and demands to make adjustments. Some of them tied directly to survival, most in some general way kind of comes back to, I think, most people who do what I do or study what my uh, <laughs> primary professional sort of occupational, scientific, health-related, behavioral health, specifically related uh, avocation <laughs> in life is, would say, but that's just... The way it goes. It's all about not only quality of life, how good your life is, but sometimes it just all comes back down to quantity. 
You don't live as long if you're unhealthy, if you do things that are maladaptive. But who gets to determine that? You do, not me. Uh, I could say the opposite. I could say that, well, some people are just born to be this way, and in some ways they're limited or restricted in terms of what they can do or can't do by genetics, or they're just so predisposed genetically that this is going to happen. And really, (laughs) the this... (laughs) the that that we're speaking of may only be a matter of all those other things I just got through saying. More environmental, more external. Again, that's a difficult thing to differentiate because as much genetics has some sort of nuclear or nuclei, uh, I want to say nucleus probably is the best way to put that, a, a grounding, a, a, a ground zero, where it all originates and starts from. Uh, as you multiply that, and the further it moves away from that, the more difficult it is to trace it down, or as you're tracing it down, you've got all these questions. And as you might begin to appreciate, these questions are difficult sometimes to answer. And getting back to my initial premise, Uh, I'd like to figure out the answer to all of these things. I'd love to have the template. I'd like to have it written in a book, and if we don't read books anymore, some compilation, compiling compilation of um, data. We can go on the Internet, (laughs) go to a website, uh, open up a file, a database, pull it out, Maybe not a book, but it's on a screen. We could somehow read it. I guess we'll always need some form of language unless there is going to be one day where people can just insert thoughts in you, but I don't know if that's always a good thought in and of itself or notion in and of itself because it could lead to way too much programming. And if it hurts to test it and change it, if life has an element of pain... Far too many people allow the pain in an avoidance sort of way and the complexity, the confusion, feeling overwhelmed by trying to figure out the ground zero of the entirety of the effect, the cause. They don't want to do deep dives and uh, they don't want to go to those places and they just want to feel better. And so you come see me and I say, okay, what do you want? Do you want to treat the symptom or do you want to figure out the problem? If it's a processing deficit or some error, some lack of knowledge or misapplication of this scientific model or methodology, as I've tried to once again capture it, oh, we can correct that if it goes back to what you should have learned in school as far as the methodology. I think I can do that uh, with good conscience uh, and say, well, there is a right way to do this, and this is the right way. Uh, And again, that may sound a bit prejudiced, or it may sound a bit biased, or it may sound like I'm telling you what to do, and even that, you can go out and test it. You can do it some other way, and again, once more, you'll probably end up continuing to have problems. Don't adjust, don't adapt. But if I tell you that, I tell you that because I think, once again, universally we all accept that. 
If psychology has given us anything, it's an understanding of not necessarily just the physiological aspects of development, but the descriptive, (laughs) the definition of thinking as an adult versus thinking as a child versus thinking as an infant child versus thinking as a adolescent, uh, young adult. I mean, we've partitioned that into various stages, and rightfully so, and there's a bit of that that does, I think, apply and nuance, but there's primarily childlike thinking and adult thinking. But I'm okay. (laughs) If you don't want to even learn to do that, I'll try to treat the symptom, but trying to figure out how the symptom got there, that's just as complex as anything I've said today on the podcast. Uh, we could spend a lifetime. And generally speaking, I'm speaking with you, getting this chance to have an encounter with you after the fact. Most people don't seek psychological counseling. I would argue that up until a certain age, you can do a lot to help the, the primary caregivers to adjust the environment, set up the contingencies, the circumstances, situations, uh, condition, socialize, slash condition, condition, slash socialize, stimulus response, kind of a behavior modification approach to kids up to about three or four. That's all you're going to get. So if a child's having problems up to about three or four, Some of it is genetic, but even if that's genetic, then you're just trying to, or biochemical, upon birth, and there's a lot of congenital kind of conditions, but you're just trying to uh, help adjust whatever could be adjusted within your choice or liberty or your agency so that the child isn't hurting as bad, and certainly with that then doesn't end up doing things or taking on behaviors uh, in a habitual sort of way that's going to somehow become part of how they do with, deal with life or do life so that they would continue to harm themselves. But when a child hits about three or four, you can begin to communicate in, in cause-effect sort of ways. And certainly this is one of those primary educational. That's why we send them to preschool. That's why we send them to daycare. That's why we send them to uh, certainly primary school and secondary education, college and university and um, continue education throughout life and why we honor education so much and believe it's so valuable and so important. And Because we just need to be reminded of this because the subjective part of it, the pain part of it, the avoidance part of it, the I don't know that I can do this, the apprehension, the fear, the poor self-image that comes from not really being taught that properly, or maybe again discouraged, whether it's by the primary caregiver or maybe it's a genetic condition. I, I can't I can't do that. And and thus sometimes I take on or people can take on, I might take on then this attitude of I'm inferior. Everybody else can do that, but I can't do that. I'm inferior. Everybody else seems to want this, but I want that, so I must be wrong. And obviously, that's not good. But you can't begin to talk about that. And even so, at three or four, there's really not much 
of this type of didactic conversation or dialectical sort of conversation going to take place, that's going to take place, you just sort of continue to work with them and help them to, to take over what they can of uh, not only comprehending, understanding, but applying then what unfortunately still gets conditioned and even with that, that sense of failure, when they get to be an adult, hopefully they'll be able to, or adolescent, approaching adulthood, they'll be able to sort that out a bit better, and that's what I do. But even adolescents and adults, sometimes the pain is so great, uh, there's such an avoidance reaction, they don't want to deal with it, they don't want to go there, they don't want to deep dive. Maybe the way that they've adjusted their life, one of the primary coping skills, contrary, that goes contrary, not only is it subjective, not only the pain to the scientific methodology, <laughs> this willingness to be open to fact and truth and open-minded and continue to learn and all those great things that we know as virtue, is just that avoidance. Fear. I don't want to face it. I don't deal with it. I just want to take the pain away. And I'm okay with that to some extent. Uh, if I can help you take the pain away, I'll do that. If that's all that you want, then that's all that I'll do. I, I don't feel a moral obligation. I'm not sure I have an ethical obligation even when it comes to then the ultimate of coping skills, hypothetical deductive reasoning, science, scientific methodology, empiricism applied to or within that filter of the scientific, the more rational, the reason, the higher cortical, again we call them cortical because it's got all that stuff to do with brain development, those frontal regions of the brain where all of this abstract thought, all this skill kind of the capability translate then eventually as you harness that and you learn to use that to maximum ability. That's the coping skill. That's it. Common sense will get you far, but common sense without some rationality or reasoning doesn't usually work, not as effectively, but when you combine the two, innate sort of intuitive thinking, which may or may not be childlike. Some of that is in, in that way. And certainly innocence is not bad if innocence as a child would mean that you're going to be open to continuing to learn. But you've got to apply the brain because sometimes the stuff that people are going to want to teach you or tell you, again, it may not be as advanced as what you've gotten to. It may be somewhat regressive. Their way of doing it as you've gone out and discovered not only that you can test it, but the responsibilities implicit in testing it, you really have to test it. You just don't want to take it in, like the thought insertion kind of thing I spoke of earlier. You just don't want to take it in, in that sort of way without running it through. <laughs> Some model of, is it real or isn't it real? Is it factual or not? Now, that can be threatening. Again, depending on how confident you are, or if you've gained some sense of confidence from your competency, your use of your genetic predispositions, aptitudes as they're manifest, and you feel pretty good about, you've been encouraged, you've been validated and supported by, again, primary caregivers, uh, primary social, extend that to community culture, all of those things as you get further away from the ground zero or, or the nucleus of it all. Uh, hopefully, you're feeling at least competent enough not to be threatened just by an idea or a thought. But some people are because they didn't get that. Trauma, hurt, abuse, all that. 
What am I saying? I'm saying that I'll be glad to treat your symptom. But I'd also want to help you understand cause effect. But there's one more caveat to all of this, or one more consideration to the caveat of all this. And that again would be, it's probably just as bad to pretend like we know what's going on as it is to not know what's going on. And many people come see me, and in order for them to treat the symptom, part of their answer seems to be, for me, and I am in that position because of, again, my training background, my credential, my education, I'm in a position to offer them an opinion. Now, sometimes the desire to offer them an opinion as to the cause, just to even satisfy that, they want to know, and it helps them to know or feel like they've got control by knowing. And some, with the best of intentions, would want them not only to know, but they want to take that and use that in a good sort of way to say, oh, now I know, I'll fix it. But what if I don't know? <laughs> what if it's complicated for me? I wasn't with you growing up. I can only take subjectively, in a subjective manner, your reports. <laughs> it's already biased. I can't go home with you and watch how you behave. I can't go to work with you. I can't be in the car with you. And I'm not saying that you're not telling me the truth. I'm just saying the subjective is a defense mechanism, but it's not a good coping strategy if what it renders us is in some sort of avoidance, denial, not wanting to face it. But all I got is you. Now, when it's a child, the younger, probably the better in the sense that I don't have that problem of subjectivity with the child because they can't tell me. They can't step outside themselves yet operationally and kind of examine. But their primary caregivers, they're biased. And what are they biased by? The stuff that otherwise they never overcame. Uh, they can only give me as much as what they're capable of developmentally, and that might be within that sort of somewhat limited or restricted zone of, of birth to their 20s. Um, but many people don't test it. They just stay in fear. They stay in avoidance. Or they fall into the trap of rather than going through the pain of that and then all of these things that we're mentioning on the podcast today, they'll just prefer somebody to tell them what to do. <laughs> I'm sworn to the highest of standards of, of uh, being ethical, virtuous, but I'm subjective. And though I might, again, aspire to be perfect in my objectivity, I'm still going to be somewhat biased. I'm better than somebody who isn't sworn to that. And I have learned that in school and I can take continuing education courses and classes that remind me of that. Take ethics courses and classes of continuing education. All of us do. It's just part of maintaining your licensure and, and keeping your standards of practice current and solid and sound, evidence-based, empirical. All of those things. I make that part of my lifestyle. But I just want to remind you, I, I am not 
the person to tell you any more than somebody else might be. I might be a better person to tell you than somebody else might be. And because I've done a lot of this, there are certain things, once again, universally, that sort of look an awful lot alike. Our diagnostic system is based on that. And with that, there's some precedents. The theory in not only a personal application, an individual application, me, applying what research is out there, where we are in the industry, in the field of behavioral health, psychology, psychological counseling. I want to apply that, but that's not a finished work, and things are constantly changing, and, and there's all kinds of different sets of circumstances in the world around us, environmentally, that we're all having to adjust to, not only individually, but corporately. And, and so it's a constant work. It's fluid in that way. It's trance, going back to the last podcast, in that way. But I don't want to tell you something that isn't true. Simply because you want an answer and you're feeling upset and complicate that by then this idea that not everybody, even with all operational systems online as an adult, are really as likely to face certain things as others are. Uh, That's unique, individual. Again, that's subjective. And with that, then if you're too young, if you're not quite even there yet, me telling you, I could get away with that. I could tell your parents who may not be as skilled or, shall I say, advanced, uh, actualized. That's the probably the most positive way of putting it, at least that I can think of on the podcast today. In this model, maybe they've not gone to school and maybe been educated. Maybe even going to school and being educated, though, doesn't necessarily mean that the school... The educational experience is true to science. (laughs) It can be corrupted. Most of the people who go to college and university are still somewhere in their teens. So it's not maybe fully online for them. Their colleges, universities, professors, um, they're as prone to subjectivity as I am, as anybody would be. They're supposed to be the purveyor of science and scientific methodology and but that doesn't guarantee it are they held to an ethical standard yes i'm not sure they're even held to my opinion which is quite subjective by the way Uh, i'm not sure at least on this point i'm not sure they're even held to the highest of standards or as high a standard as i am in application i don't know that they're going to lose their tenure at university if they um would give you bad information. I think it's pretty difficult sometimes, as much as I am an adjunct faculty at a university, which means I'm not a full-time professor, but I teach at the graduate school level courses. Um, What I do know is that it's hard (laughs) to discharge someone simply because they're even so, you would think, they didn't teach not only the subject matter, but science, put it within a scientific context. What use are they? Well, it's difficult to fire them. It's difficult to discharge them. Once you get tenure, you're in. 
So I'm not saying that that's evil or corrupt or any more evil or corrupt than the rest of it. I'm just saying don't count on that being necessarily always the best place to find the purest of aspirations and intent when it comes to applying this methodology. But kids are much easier to tell what to do. Children are much easier to tell what to do. Adolescents are much easier to tell what to do. If their parents haven't gone to school, that's even probably makes them even more vulnerable than parents who have. And depending on where the parents who have gone to school, they may still be subject to some corruption. So we just need to be cautious not to offer up bad advice. I do not want to tell you what the cause of something is if I don't know. It's unethical. Even if it may seem expedient to give you an answer so you'll feel better, and even as you're chasing down then in your independence, autonomy, agency, answers, and it's painful enough because it's just not fitting together for whatever reason. Again, I don't always know the answer. I've tried to outline that best I could. It's probably got something in a very major way, I don't want to say majority, a greater way with your upbringing. It has some genetic potential, but even then, or, or at least some inference to uh, directly, it's all directly correlated to genetics, but, but the inference is, is that some, somehow some people believe that maybe we have such strong genetic predispositions that it's inevitable. We're going to turn out this way. I'm one of those that's more inclined to think we all have the same, and it's what we do with those. So that'll probably take a while to get all the answers to. Where's the ground zero? Uh, nobody knows until they can somehow fully get into that place of being able to measure it, study it, apply good uh, research model, hypothetical deductive reasoning. Uh, at that level, we have the instruments to measure it, the means to measure it. That's like still, in my opinion, a ways off. And that presumes that any of us could get out of our own heads enough, even as a human culture, we're all subjectively biased by some basic universal human experiences. This is the way we are. And to pretend like we're not is wrong. We just have to admit that and accept that. But if we're going to look at that, I'm not going to offer you a solution simply because it seems expedient. Or that might make you feel better, reduce your symptoms in an immediate sort of way. I'm going to do what I do on the podcast. I don't want to confuse you. I don't want to take you out into the weeds any more than we're in the weeds. I just want you to know. In the end, I'm going to give you the best I have. I've already said what that is. Science, empiricism within that context of good research, evidence-based, sound practices, ethical, highest order of ethical considerations. But you're going to have to make the decision. Do you want to use that? Do we want to go a little deeper? We'll never probably get the full answer, but we can sometimes find out a lot of things. You know, when, <laughs> I'll give you an example. When the electricity's off of the house and the circuit won't work, you could say, well, Maybe the electricity's off everywhere, and probably most people start with that. And then they realize their neighbor's lights are still on, 
Uh, maybe it's something in my house. Maybe the electricity's off in my house. Maybe I need to call somebody to come in and see what's happened. Maybe it's between the pole and the house, the line. As most of us have that, some probably have underground, but even then, you can't even see it if it's underground. Run into the house. The generac isn't on, so what does that mean? You know, we don't know. Maybe I just need to go down to the circuit breakers and take a look. And so you try the main, and it's working. And then you proceed to go to the different circuits, and then all of a sudden you discover, oh, something shorted out just one circuit. The rest of the house is working. Why didn't I realize that? It was just this one, and I'll just flip the breaker. That seems a little overly simplified and a bit trite, but that's really roughly so the model. We can come up with maybe some real basic sort of answers. We can apply that common sense perspective as it seems overly simple, but we're not going to do that without flavoring it, so to speak, or making sure that we use the higher sort of order of thoughts to be able to answer the question. But parsimony, it's a concept, but it dictates if there's a simple answer, do that first. Then, if it doesn't fix it, we can go further. But the further you go, the less, the more, I should say. I want to say it that way. The more intrusive, the bigger the change, the more permanent the change, the cost, <laughs> efficacy, that goes into it, you better be sure that you've tried the simple stuff first because if you go to the biggest one and you spend the most and expend the most resource to try to fix it and then it doesn't work and it was just simply a circuit breaker, but you thought the world was coming to an end, that the electricity was off for everyone, that we'd finally, I guess, broken the energy grid or whatever. There's no energy out there and we're all going to die then you've probably lost a lot. Can you correct it? Yes, but the correction itself is going to have consequences. And you're going to have to apply that hypothetical deductive model of reasoning empiricism to solving problems that maybe would not have been there had you not done that or one had not done that. And so it's additional resource and additional energy. And though I don't believe energy as a resource is finite, whatever you make it, monetary or maybe just uh, positive energy, just again, desire, motive, positive motive as that energy to want to do better, it's still going to wear you out after a while. And the journey now has become even more difficult. And with that, you've failed again. And with that, you've maybe decided it's not worth doing this again. And I'll just not deal with that at all. I'll just avoid that altogether. It doesn't go away. So in that sense, we can treat symptoms and we can do a little bit of an exploration as to cause effect, we'll never have all of the answers, but maybe we can address the most basic sort of answers. And that kind of brings me to the point of the podcast. 
And I said last podcast, a bit deviant. Well, we're on the same subject matter. And I've repeated a good bit of what I said last podcast, maybe in a different enough way that it's not bored you. But I really need to establish that because the article in Psychology Today, I referenced it last podcast, what parents of trans kids want to know when a child first tells their parents that they're transgender or binary or, excuse me, non-binary, their parents have questions. Often these tense by Devon Fry. It's important stuff. And I think it gets to the core of everything I spoke about today. Because except that we would understand it in fullest of contexts, whatever these questions are that parents want to know, and really they're the primary caregivers. They control the child's universe in that way that we've kind of spoken of it today. And yet, when a person gets to of age to make choice, then they're going to test what we've either encouraged, maybe given them, maybe what we've encouraged in terms of how to take on challenges, tough things, things that demand, require answers, that some things we're not going to be able to give you all the answers to, but you're going to have to figure out how to find them. But in that same sort of a way, we've given them a chance or a hope of some success. We've encouraged them in the right way to explore. We sent them to good schools where they're teaching science, where they're teaching empiricism, where the decisions are being made based on evidence-based, not by people who are not experts (laughs) in the subject matter. But see, that's the whole point. I mean... It's really not even about subject matter. It's really not about trans or trans kids. It's about empiricism and science. Because whatever the cause is that's got us to where we are, some of it has to do with parents. But we may not be able to, in that ground zero manner I've once again spoken of on the podcast today or in the podcast today, we're not going to be able to put it all together yet. If anybody could ever except through empiricism, except through empiricism as would then be within the context of science and all these great highest order of thoughts. So (laughs) take this on. It's a little long, and I'll try to break it into parts so it won't wear you out, and it won't all be done on today's podcast. When Noah Stutman, now 15, first felt the pangs of gender incongruence, it was really confusing, he recalls. I wasn't quite sure what I was feeling other than this is not my body. He grappled silently with his dysphoria, unsure what it signified until he saw a presentation on gender fluidity as part of his school's Pride Day programming. It opened my eyes. And this is, again, I didn't say it. I was reading, uh, quoting specifically. I was reading a passage specifically from the article. But this is in the October 2022 edition of Psychology Today. When a child first tells their parents that they're transgender or non-binary, their parents have questions, often these ten. Noah being the personification, his parents, going back to the article, 
Dana and Michael Stutman have been supportive from the start. But it's been a new experience for all of us, and there's been some trial and error. Error, Noah says. Including some early instances of misgendering and misnaming that frustrated him. But these incidences have grown less frequent with time, and the changes Noah's parents have seen since his coming out have been gratifying. Before, he was reticent, even shy, Dana says. Now he's happy, gregarious. He's become a very confident, well-adjusted kid. Now, all that sounds great. And once again, this is a bit different in presentation because I'm going to break it down into parts. And it's not something that I can just read as a singular sort of thought and speak to in such a general way that I tend to uh, on the podcast, uh, previous podcasts or uh, installments, episodes. This is going to take a bit of unraveling. After all, there's 10 questions. Is this real? That was the first thought to course through Dana Stutzman's mind when her youngest child, Noah, disclosed to his parents that he didn't feel like a girl, though he was assigned female at birth. Dana, the daughter of an endocrinologist, understood more than many that some people experience deep discomfort with the sex they were born as and seek treatment to rectify the disparity. Still, the incongruence experienced by her father's patients felt abstract and unknowable. Until she heard the child she'd spent nearly a dozen years raising express the same kind of distress. Until you experience it personally, the reality of it is hard to grasp, says Dana, who lives with her family in New York City, accepting it takes a leap of faith. Which, again, I'll try to make sure that you know the difference between when I'm reading the article and when I'm commenting on it, which that's going to happen with this particular subject, with this particular, these particular series of podcasts. Faith to me would be courage. Going back to the article. In recent years, hundreds of thousands of children and teens in the U.S. alone have shared that their internal experience of their gender, known as gender identity, does not align neatly with the physical sex characteristics they were born with. Some, like Noah, are transgender. Their physical and felt genders do not match, and they take any of an array of steps to change their gender expression. Others are non-binary. They don't identify with either the male or female end of the gender spectrum. Still more are gender fluid. The gender with which they identify as flexible or changing. Their parents, by and large, want to do right by their kids. They also want to protect them from a world that can be actively hostile, uh, excuse me, hostile excuse me again, to those who don't fit societal expectations of how men and women should look and behave, all while trying to make sense of a highly polarized public conversation around gender diversity and what gender-questioning kids do or do not need. After speaking to pediatricians, endocrinologists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, those doing research and those on the clinical front lines, Psychology Today, has called the most 
pressing questions, C-U-L-L-E-D, the most pressing questions parents have, and the experts answer. Question number one, did we cause this? Often even the most supportive parents can't shake a nagging question, was this something we did? Our unconditional answer is absolutely not, says Daniel Schumer, a pediatric endocrinologist at Mott Children's Hospital and associate professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Gender identity is not something a parent can cause to be different or to change. A better question for parents to consider, why am I asking this at the question's root, the ground zero, is often a desire to explain what feels at a gut level like an aberration, says psychologist Laura Anderson, who works with gender nonconforming kids in her Hawaii practice. We cannot minimize the lifetime of conditioning against this, emphasizes Ken Page, a New York-based psychotherapist. Some parents thus probe their family structure or belief system in search of one thing that lies at the root of their child's gender distress. A distant same gender role model, perhaps, or previously unknown abuse or overindulgence run rampant. A lot of energy goes into how do we explain what's wrong here, Anderson reports, a pursuit that can be hurtful to children who desperately seek parental validation and are skilled at recognizing when they're not getting it. It's also ultimately a pointless pursuit. There is no specific parental decision or behavior that leads a child to become transgender or non-binary or non-binary. This is who your child is as a person, says Melissa Sipersky, a psychologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Pediatric Transgender Clinic. It's not something that happened to them. Okay, time for commentary. That's question one. And there's a lot of questions. There's nine more. And we're not going to obviously get them to them today. But we're going to, we're going to over the next at least one, maybe two podcasts. So, did we cause this? Was this something we did? And the article states, our unconditional answer is absolutely not, according to, or says, Daniel Schumer, a pediatric endocrinologist at Mott Children's Hospital and associate professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Gender identity is not something a parent can cause to be different or to change. Now, certainly Daniel Schumer has the credential. I'm not questioning that. Also, as we go down the list, there is others. Laura Anderson in practice in Hawaii, Kim Page, a New York-based psychotherapist. We go a little further on, and then there's Melissa Sipersky, a psychologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Pediatric Transgender Clinic. And her quote, it's not something that happened to them, or her, as quoted, is not something that happened to them. So, I believe that cause is desirable. We want to understand it. We want to know why. But as I said earlier, sometimes to pretend like we have an answer, though it may seem in the moment 
to be solid or at least offer us some consolation. Maybe it is a fact that we've identified, but facts are really not causes. Facts just are evidence of a phenomenon, something in this way. We could take back to the ground zero cause effect. But if we don't know for sure, we ought to be careful to not sell it as factual in the sense of, dare I say, true or truth. And we're contending with an adolescent who we've already said, and not contention in a bad way, but we're looking at this within the context, the situation. I want to make sure that I do this rightly. The situation and circumstance pertains to an adolescent who we already have presupposed is not only possibly still in some sort of developmental phase of acquisition when it comes to the total package of operational systems within then the capacity to operate within the context of this highest order of science, research-based, evidence-based, solid sound model of study to take his empirical experiences to run it through to apply and to make a decision about it. I don't disagree. We want him to feel comforted. That's why they come see me. That's why they would seek help. That's why they would turn to their parents and why the parents ask these questions. The parents presumably so in this particular reference as we're looking at this in this article, they want to help their child. We would want to believe most parents are wanting to help their child and with that are so considerate, so loving, <laughs> that would even accept a child's belief, an idea that may not be so sound yet, could be sound, but we don't know it's sound yet because of where they are and their ability to conceptualize it, put words to it, even attach concepts to it, and unfortunately are kind of going off of what they've been taught in school or shown in school or told in school. This is your problem. This is the cause. You just need to fix the cause. You need to change because they assume the, the theory, <laughs> the hypothesis, that it is so much part of your genetic encoding, there is no modification of that. Or it's specific to that, there's no heterosexual, as you would then maybe define that. I know we're talking gender, and somehow those two things anymore these days are questioned how they connect. I get that. We're at that point where we're trying to understand the full nuance of it. Ask the questions. Explore it. But the idea that somehow, genetically speaking, that we're going to say that you're born to be a particular way without understanding all of the genetics in terms of mechanism and whether or not my theory, that I tend to lean more toward, that we all have a universal capability and it's what we do with that or what our environment or contingency, nature versus nurture kind of argument, it's not been resolved. It would be an error of measurement. The hypotheses would be flawed by the subjective bias that somebody 
is either unfortunately not relying upon the precedent of science and what we know to date, has some other issue or cause subjectively that they cannot see, maybe there's some, <laughs> call it more nefarious element, maybe there's some other reason that we can't see that's like a circuit breaker. Something has caused them to short circuit. But to tell individuals, and this by far is not a family that doesn't have an educational background. Certainly the primary reference was to the mom and the fact that her father, the grandfather, I would think, can't say for sure, but as much as I can infer, was an endocrinologist. They know about those kind of things. But do endocrinologists know what's going on genetically? I think we have better knowledge today. We have better mapping. We can see the, how that influences, if not primarily so. But we don't know that there's not other factors. And what I do know is social dimension, environmental dimension is a powerful factor especially the younger you are. You are what you're told you are, what you're communicated you are. And even your ability to have awareness of your identity <laughs> without the subjective filter is impossible until you get to a certain age, as I confessed earlier. I don't even like to work with kids individually until they're four, three or four, and even then, up until their adolescence, I insist that the parents be involved as much as is possible and legally so. There's some requirements that preclude them from their involvement. I have to abide by because it's tied to my ethical sort of considerations, my licensure even, my ability to practice. But if I'm able to bring it out so that everybody's perspective to I'm getting concurrent validity established here, though there may be a subjective distortion. <laughs> maybe, maybe the parents are educated in some ways. Maybe they're not. Maybe they don't know anything about this. Maybe they don't understand the psychological dimensions. I want everybody who's involved, the better, the more the better, to offer an opinion. But to take that one individual's opinion who is probably not capable of rendering an accurate, with that objective, I should say, report, or even conceptualize it and put it into words, except that they would have been taught that, shown that, who by the time they understood identity had already been potentially conditioned, <laughs> So that when we're beginning to now finally test the theory, nobody wants to test it. They just want to take away the pain. As I said in the podcast, if that's all you want, I can work with you on treating the symptom. But I'm going to give you this disclaimer. I'm not going to argue with you over it. It's your decision, your choice. If it's your child, it's your decision, your choice. But should I not present the possibility of an alternative? And though there's a lot of credential in this article, especially in this question number one, uh, they can drop names of institutions as well as particular professors and 
practitioners and providers. And I, I don't know any of these individuals except to say, well, they seem like they should know. <laughs> and with that, maybe they do. And who's to question their uni- the university <laughs> and whether it's a good one or a bad one? That's the point, though. Who's to question it? I don't know enough to question it except to know this, that that is not proven yet. It's not empirically sound. Why? Because as we go through the other questions, it'll become very clear there's no real knowledge of the cause. But unfortunately, even in the article, they've already sort of begun to prejudice this by saying environmental, social influence doesn't play a part. I disagree. I don't think that's scientifically sound. I don't think that matches anything in a more general sort of way that we've considered up until the evidence of the problem became such that we're now contending with it. There's probably always been some dimension of that. But for the first time, we've put it out there front and center and we've begun to come up with hypotheses. This is for the first time in this kind of broadest, just like as I was speaking about the child or the patient. My contention is not with the patient. My contention is with their lack of ability to understand this within the highest order of empiricism or empirical thinking, empiricism applied, the highest order of theory, thought, the most adaptive order of theory or thought, cognition, paradigm, model of of dealing with the demands of life. And why would this all of a sudden appear out of nowhere? It's got to be more than we just kept it hidden. Or people were just kind of discouraged because we just didn't find it politically correct or it was an inconvenience. I don't think that's true. Does it happen in other species? Yes. That's okay. If you can show that within the context of the human species, that's a good cause. I still don't know that it would not be without social influence, environmental influence, which could include things, as the article presented. Some degree of a distant same-gender role model. Here we go. I'm going to read the paragraph rather than try to... Just extrapolate or pull out a couple pieces of it. Some parents thus probe their family structure or belief system in search of one thing. And it's not. That they're true about. It's not one thing, but we can't say it is one thing. And the argument that it's not one thing can't be defended by making it one thing. Genetics. Some parents thus probe their family structure or belief system in search of one thing that lies at the root of their child's gender distress. A distant same gender role model? But that's possible. We know that. I've seen that. Research has established that. There's an effect. Is it all-inclusive? Is it total? Is it one thing? No, it's not. But it's not genetically one thing either. Perhaps, as the article says, or previously unknown abuse. Is it abuse entirely one thing? No. I don't say that. But it's part of a much larger complex of things. 
And to sort it out and to get to the ground zero is hard or difficult. But I would not resort to saying it's abuse anymore than I would resort to saying it's gender, even if it were for the comfort of the patient, or seemingly in some ways removing the discomfort or the pain, or in some ways trying to pretend like answers to these type of questions in life is without pain or is easy. It's not easy. It's difficult, but we need to be sound. We need to apply science. I want to do this properly, correctly. We should want to do this. The generations that follow may be strongly influenced not by gender fluidity as much as by a distortion, a corruption of the scientific methodology. A distortion and corruption of possibly the one thing that allows us to sort it all out. The one most adaptive coping skill. The one most adaptive mechanism of coping. The one most adaptive mechanism of not only quality of life, but quantity of life. We can't allow that to be compromised simply because it doesn't feel good. And then rush out, investing all sorts of energy and resource, creating with that then if we're wrong, if our hypotheses as we're presenting it as truth is not yet established as valid and reliably tested, which is the model, scientific model, then what we're doing is we're hurting people. We're not helping people. They take my license away from me if I did that. If I went before a licensure board and I was accused of doing this, they'd sanction me, at least. And at most, they would revoke my license. Would it be permanently? I don't know. They have the power to do that, which means I couldn't practice again. Now, again, there's a subjective element to that. I don't want that to happen. But at the same time, though, simply because the culture seems, and it seems expedient, and there's numbers, and even if the licensure board isn't held to such the highest ethical standard as the law, and, you know, I hate to go here, but I'm going to say it. But who has that level of confidence in the law anymore, or the judges who would interpret the law I am not going to get out in the weeds because everybody else is in the weeds. I'm not going to chase down a trail until I am sure a path that's going to lead to somebody else being harmed, more so only because I don't want to be harmed. I want to do what is empirically sound. I want to do what is evidence-based. I do not want to make recommendations simply because I'm in a a position or a place of some authority, credential, and because it benefits you feeling better and you'll think I'm great. Or you'll think my model or mode of intervention is great. Or that my advice is great. That secondary gain. That's a conflict of interest. That's unethical. I don't believe psychology today is doing that. I'm not accusing these individuals that they're citing and quoting of doing that. I'm just saying when you read this, read this, and when they speak to you, no matter what institution they represent, no matter what credibility that institution seems or appears to have, use some dimension of common sense, I'm trying to remind you of, and then use science. 
Test it. Read about it. Research it. Just don't buy it. And though I respect 15-year-olds, I am not going to believe they're the experts at applying science. They have innocence. Tried to capture that earlier in the podcast. That's to be great. They're open-minded. They're supposed to be learning how to do this for themselves, testing it. They're trying to gain mastery of it. But I'm not going to give in, especially if I am still in that position at a 15-year-old. I am still responsible as the primary caregiver for making that decision. They're not capable of making that decision. Now, if we were talking about the example that they presented in Psychology Today, it wasn't about an adult who's 25 years old. It'd be a different conversation I'd be having right now because I wouldn't be bringing up all these points. I'd still might. But I'd still caution them, or as I would caution them, I'd still believe. Ultimately, it's your decision. I can help you treat the symptom. If you want to treat the symptom by going through whatever procedure to realign your gender or to change in a hormonal way your your physical construction or to go through some surgery, I don't know that I think it's necessarily the most efficacious thing to do, I would again say, well, why don't we take this slow, why don't we look for the circuit breaker first rather than presume that the whole energy grid of the world has shut down because of climate change or whatever it would be, hurricanes or whatever, natural causes. But at the same time, if you're insistent on shutting it all down, it's not my call, it's your call. And I'm going to do everything I can because of my ethics Because of my understanding, that's not my decision to make. It's yours. I'm going to do everything I can to support you in that. But I'm going to provide you all the information I have, and you have to make the decision. And that includes, I don't know that you're practicing science here. I don't know that you're being empirically sound. I don't know that you're living up to the highest example or model a methodology when it comes to such testing of such an important thing as not only the quantity of your life, the quality of your life, but the quantity of your life. And who knows? I mean, you're talking reproduction here. I mean, it may be what time we have left as a species on the earth (laughs) or wherever we may end up colonizing in terms of the vast unknown outside of our little world, our little head. Why would we compromise that in such a radical way as to discourage something that has worked and given us the evolutionary advantage over all these years, decades? Time itself, as we would know of it, since humans came on the picture. I know evolution says that, well, we evolved. Yeah, that's true. And there's a bit of all of that evolution in us. But we're talking about the origins of the species. I think Darwin would hopefully, in context of this kind of presentation, would agree. We just probably need to recognize, yeah, there's natural influences, but we have the ability to override the natural. That's what this is all about, right? We can change our bodily composition and structure. That's where we are. And do we really want to do that? Because if it doesn't work, we're in trouble. Now, am I predicting trouble? No. Am I forecasting trouble? No. I've just learned 
If you don't apply science, you usually continue to repeat, not maybe the exact identical mistake, but it's the primary error of measurement. A type one error, I believe it is. Your subjectivity has compromised your ability to see it objectively, and thus everything about science is objectivity. Everything about truth is presuming that the subjective is the primary source of error in our appraisal and our decision-making. That's why people come see me. I offer them hopefully at least one other perspective, and I'm going to encourage them to take in a multitude of perspectives. Let's all put our heads together and sort this out. Not out of avoidance or fear or even as we would face it, we're going to face it with some bias that somehow we already know what's right or that you're wrong. No, that's not science. But if you go to university and they don't teach that, you may want to consider to go to, uh, whether you need to go to that university or another one because I'm not sure that's science. And I think that's what you would want when you come to see someone who does what I do. I think that's what you'd want by listening to a podcast like this. I think that's what you'd want out of anybody that you've had to make a a really important decision with. Maybe you want it from everybody, but we already accept it's not going to be there. But the people who are making decisions, the decision makers, they need to make sure they're vetted in this. And that's why I'm going over this article. And why we're going to go over it slowly. I'm not going to just read it and offer a kind of a sweeping generalization afterwards. Although I may get back to that. Because some things just really don't require that much. And even in those previous podcasts, or as much the pattern has kind of been more that way than the way we're doing it right now. The deviance. Being a bit deviant. But the notion of it is, we always put the science in there. And that you may get tired of, me saying it over and over and over again. But folks, if I could sell you on one notion, if I could say with every ounce of credibility I have in me, and representing as best I might in this context of speaking to you in the way I am, of psychology, psychological counseling, of science of empiricism, for those who have gone to university, for those who haven't. We all have some dimension of common sense. Allow your common sense to be applied. If you're not thinking in this highest order of ways, you're going to be told what to do. And generally the people that want to tell you what to do, if you were thinking in these ways, they wouldn't want to tell you what to do. You're going to subject yourself to changing the natural order, which you can do. And you can get away with it. We have that power and that ability. But is it the best thing for us? That's the question that only science can answer. And what is the best thing for us? Is it adaptive? Does it bring the highest quality of life? As well as does it really even maybe get down to the baseline of life itself? The quantity. Whether we have it or we don't have it. Once more, that's why... Do the podcast. I think it's important. Uh, I think you need to hear that. And so, with this particular subject matter and this particular discussion and this particular moment and point in our culture and what's been going on and what we've been told was science, but maybe really isn't, in that spirit, I'm going to spend a bit of time on this. With that belief or thought in mind, or at least establishing that for you, I'm going to invite you back to the next podcast, should you want to return, and again, that's always your choice, 
What are you listening to? You're listening to Word with Dave Clay. And what is my deepest, sincerest, sincerest regards or concerns? That you would have not only good health, but good mental health. And as I always say, until next time.